If you would turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy, we are in chapter 4 today, near the end of your Old Testaments, and uh, go there to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Please listen carefully, as always, as this is God's word. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us again to Paul's first letter to Timothy this morning to learn more about sound doctrine and about the danger of disbelief and the need to keep striving after godliness. And Lord, this is hard. Sometimes we don't want to admit that we're not nearly as godly as we pretend to be. And sometimes the Christian life gets so hard we just want to quit. And we know so many who have. And so, Lord, once again, teach us what to do, teach us what to say, teach us what to believe, teach us how to live. Build our faith, draw us near, and help us learn from you this morning. And so we pray, speak through these words of the Apostle Paul this morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, recently, a former pastor in our presbytery wrote a revealing introspective post on Facebook about his, quote, church deconstruction journey, his words, not mine. He came to Potomac Presbytery in order to plant a church, and he partnered with one of our churches, which means they supported his church plant uh, financially and administratively, and he went to work, only it didn't go well. There was constant relational conflict, which happens sometimes, And after some initial growth, the church shrunk to a point where it was no longer sustainable. And at that point, the presbytery closed the work, and he then transferred his credentials to another denomination. Altogether, that was about a four-year process 
and it ended about four years ago. Well, this is how he wrote about that process this week. He said, they, the partnering church, were generous to us, but as we made our journey of decoding church and losing our religion, they were clearly baffled by what we were trying to do and so cut ties with us. This was part of an announcement. He was starting a new initiative called Saving Sunday. It was for his, quote, fellow faith travelers who have been on a journey of exploration, unlearning, and reconstructing. We're still very much on this path. He goes on to say it's really for people who've been wounded by the church and don't know what to do. Now, as far as I know, he's been upfront about what he's doing. I want to give him the benefit of the doubt, even though our recollection of what happened varies a great deal. Now, I've been reading and listening to a lot of these deconstruction stories. I follow a number of podcasts. Most of them are about preaching and the church and the culture. And so I did a search among the podcasts that I already follow for the word deconstruction. And I found 101 episodes already on my phone. Hundreds of articles, too many to count. An ever-increasing number of books being written on the subject. I think the best starter book is Before You Lose Your Faith, Deconstructing Doubt in the Church. It's published by the Gospel Coalition. But my concern with this pastor is that most of these deconstruction stories actually start like this. Things didn't go my way. It's not my fault. I wasn't treated well, and I'm not doing that anymore. And often the failure to agree over time becomes an accusation of abuse. And the gospel is largely absent from these stories. And as they continue to justify what they're doing, you're going to hear less and less about Jesus. Now, I hope that doesn't happen in this case, but it happens in most cases. So I'm concerned, and I'll be praying for him. Now, a couple of caveats. First, sometimes there is real abuse and trauma. People have been really hurt in some churches. There are pastors who are jerks. I hope you don't have one. I understand the doubt that comes when abuse and trauma happen. People who have been hurt need to be cared for, not vilified. Second, there is a much larger group of people who have deconstructed because they cannot let go of the sin in their life. Lots of people begin this process of doubting their faith because they know that Christianity doesn't condone their sin and they can't come up with a good way to rationalize it. And so it's just easier to leave. This is what brought about the famous Tim Keller question. When a young adult, usually a college student, came to him with doubts about the faith, he would just look at them and ask, who are you sleeping with? Now, the situation I mentioned with the former pastor in our presbytery doesn't fall under either of those caveats, at least not yet. As far as I know, he did not suffer abuse from the partnering church, nor is he trying to rationalize sinful behavior. But with that said, I want you to hear me clearly on this next point. Being disappointed by your pastor or your church is not abuse. Being disagreed with by your pastor or your church 
is not abuse. Now, what had to be the most popular article among PCA pastors ever, um, last Wednesday, Todd Pruitt of Covenant PCA in Harrisonburg, he preached here last May, um, published an article on the Reformation 21 website entitled, You Probably Have a Good Pastor. And it was a long article, but in it he wrote, I have no desire to diminish the sad experiences of those who found themselves in the unfortunate and at times tragic circumstances of having an abusive pastor. But the attention given to those who abuse God's people suggests, whether intentionally or unintentionally, that abusive pastors are the norm. And I think we all know why. It's because the salacious stories of bad pastors get a lot more traffic than any unspectacular account of the many good pastors who day after day faithfully plot away at their calling. Truth be told, there's something in us that rather enjoys the sensational and the scandalous. We like reading the stories of the fiends and the failures, but the facts on the ground are much more boring. Most of us have good pastors. Perfect pastors? Of course not. Pastors who have never disappointed us or successfully mortified all their remaining sin? Nope. But measured against the scripture's expectations for leadership, most Bible-believing evangelical churches are served by good pastors. Now, I think that's true. I encourage you to read the whole article. He has a lot more to say. But nonetheless, what do we do with those people who do leave the church, who leave the faith, who often leave the relationships that are connected to the church and to the faith? You know some of those people. Some of them used to be here, and now they're gone. And some have left the faith. And some are in the process of leaving the faith. And they have allowed doubt to become disbelief. Now, this is not a new phenomenon. We had a whole sermon series on it last January. And the Apostle Paul has already told us in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1. He wrote, uh, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, <coughs> some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, who I have handed over to Satan. They may learn not to blaspheme. Deconstruction wasn't invented in this century. Now, before we move on, we need to define some of the terms. Our discussion can become very confusing because people often use the same words but with different dictionaries. So let's look at the three confusing D words. First one is de-churching. It's a relatively new word, but this is how most people start. And there is a new book, The Great De-churching, and in it we discover about 40 million adults in America today used to go to church but no longer do. That accounts for about 16% of the adult population. These are people who have left the church, but many of them may or may not have left the faith, at least not yet. And he gives lots of reasons, and the number one reason is inconvenience. And some aftermath of COVID where people got out of the habit and just got busy doing other stuff. The second word is deconstruction. 
This is a prolonged process of examining and replacing previously assumed beliefs. Now, sometimes there's reconstruction where you have left bad beliefs and replaced them with good beliefs. And I was looking into this, and very interestingly, I discovered that deconstruction as an industry, and it has its own coaches for hire, got its big push, its start from people um, trying to help Mormons who are leaving the Mormon church. And they didn't know where to go. And so many of the first deconstructionists were actually people helping folks leave false churches and cults and that sort of thing. Its entry into Christianity came from people leaving fundamentalism and not knowing what to do next. So deconstruction can have a good end that people end up with good doctrine and a real relationship with Jesus that they may not have had before. But it doesn't always work out that way. Sometimes people move through the deconstruction phase and end up with our third word, which is deconversion. In this case, their Christian identity has been overwhelmed, so they've simply jettisoned it. They no longer believe one of two things. Now, for most of the folks who've departed the faith, they no longer believe, A, that Christianity is true. So they walk away, usually from anything or anyone who reminds them of their old life. These folks usually, but not always, cut off all ties to their old friends eventually. Another group of folks who've departed the faith no longer believe that Christianity is good. Usually, again, not always, often these are folks who've been hurt, who've suffered under the abuse of misused authority, or experienced some form of trauma. And because their experience wasn't good, for them that means it's not good for anyone. There's also a group in this camp who've seen another person get traumatized and have owned that for themselves. In other words, my friend got hurt, therefore I got hurt, so I'm leaving too. Well, virtually none of these groups talk about, and if you look through the literature, which at this point is still largely articles, is who else was involved in the process. Very, very few people do this on their own. Some people are personally led astray by false teachers, but more are led away impersonally by false teaching. That's what Paul's getting at in today's passage. People who are being led away by false teachers who they know are false teaching where they may not know the teacher. In our culture, because of the internet, it's more becoming being led astray impersonally by people you don't know. And Paul's going to address that. So let's finally uh, turn to our passage for today, 1 Timothy 4. And we're going to start with the results of false teaching. The results of false teaching. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Now, I know, uh, largely due to the series we did in January on uh, bringing back the wanderer, that many of you can tell me stories of people that you know who have left the faith. Many of you have shared those stories. 
perhaps some of them were friends of yours uh, in a youth group or a college group who drifted away from Christ and eventually renounced him in the church. And the Apostle Paul here is telling us, don't be surprised when that happens. The Spirit has said that it would happen. God's Word is not failing when you see that happen. It's actually being fulfilled when you see that happen. Notice what he says. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. You may be asking where exactly um, does in the New Testament does the Spirit say that? Well, there's a number of places, but he says that through the words of Jesus. Matthew 24, verse 11, And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Apostle Paul, speaking to this very congregation back in Acts 20, warns the elders of this church that there will be some even from among their own number that will rise up and lead some of the flock astray. In his letter to the Galatians, who warn of false teachers who will lead them astray. And Peter and Jude both warn the people of God about the danger of falling away. And Paul here is warning us about the danger of sort of idealizing life in the church um, in this world. The reality is there is no such thing as a perfect church. Somebody said if you want to go to a church without any problems, you will be the only one there. There is no church where everyone is irreversibly committed to the Lord Jesus. There is always a danger of false teaching leading people astray. Now, I need to pause very quickly as we look at this phrase, some will depart from the faith. I don't believe that Paul is saying some people become Christians, they're regenerated by the Holy Spirit, united to Christ, truly resting in him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel, and then they lose their salvation. I don't think that's what he's saying. That would clearly go against so much else of what he has said. I think he's speaking about people who've made a profession of faith, And then eventually, by renouncing the faith later on, by their falling away, reveal that they never really experienced that grace in the first place. Now, you could think, well, you're reading that into that phrase. But I think the Bible is reading that into that phrase. And John explains this very phenomenon. If we look at 1 John chapter 2, he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. So John is describing a group who is following the false teachers in his church. And he says when they left that church, when they renounced their fellowship uh, with them in Christ, they showed that they were not of us. He does not say they once were of us, but then they rejected Christ and they ceased. He says, no, we know they were never of us because they're gone. He left their, they left their profession of faith. And so there's times, one of our jobs as elders, we meet with people is to make sure their profession of faith is sincere. But there's times when you know that we have uh, brought church discipline against people for various things, and uh, when they are out of the church, what we say is the profession of faith they made is no longer credible. We no longer know whether we can believe that or not. Um, They have left their claim to trust in Christ for salvation. And so here, Paul is explaining how someone goes from having been a professing believer 
to turning their back on Christ. He's not explaining how they lose their salvation, but how do some people answer the questions and make a profession of faith and then sometime down the road say, yeah, I don't believe that anymore. Listen to what he says, how this happens. He says they're listening by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. That's hard language. How is it that one ceases to follow Christ? How is it that one goes from professing faith in Christ to one who doesn't embrace him at all? By listening to false teaching. And how often have we seen that happen in the lives of our friends? They've listened, they've become interested in, they've had their curiosity peaked by false teaching. And then they start to follow that. And Paul says that's how people who have professed faith in Christ are led astray. They've listened to false teaching. But look what he says is behind the work of false teaching. He describes it as deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons. It is the work of the evil one that is behind false teaching. This is the kingdom of darkness at work. And Paul doesn't want us to be surprised when people who've professed faith in Christ fall away. Because when that happens, what Jesus said and what the Holy Spirit said through Paul and Peter and Jude and others in the New Testament is simply coming to pass. It doesn't mean we shouldn't be sad about it, and it certainly doesn't mean we shouldn't be praying uh, for them. But the word of God's authority is not undermined if someone turns their back on Christ or the church. The word of God is being confirmed when that happens. And so Paul is saying this to warn us. Now, there's a lot here about what that particular form of false teaching is. It amounts to a form of legalism that rejects what God has provided for our good. But the fundamental error here is not um, uh, what they're forbidding, is that they're setting their own view of the Christian life over what God has revealed in his word. They're forbidding what God allowed. And therefore, they're setting their opinion above God's word as the only rule of faith and practice. And friends, when you begin to forbid what God allows, soon you will begin to allow what God forbids. False teaching leads us in those two directions every time. Often it starts by being narrower than the word of God, and it will not allow things the word of God allows. Then it becomes broader than the word of God, and it will allow other things that the word of God does not allow. Again, when you begin to forbid things that God allows, soon you will allow things that God forbids. Why? Because you've set yourself up as the final authority of truth. You've placed yourself over God's word. And that's why Paul is so angered by these false teachers. So how do we overcome this? This is what the rest of the chapter is about. Simply put, you overcome false teaching with good teaching. That sounds like common sense. But it's not just good teaching, but with a life that lines up with that teaching. So you have to have the right words, but you also have to have a life that goes along with those words. You all know that doesn't always happen. Years ago, my daughter attended a church in Louisiana. It was a good church. Teaching was excellent. Pastor was gifted, I thought. And he gave me a commentary he wrote based on a sermon series he did on 1 Timothy. It's good stuff. He's no longer in the ministry. He fell in immorality and was disciplined by his presbytery. 
his life and his words didn't match. And Paul says, you've got to have both. The real purpose of this chapter is to demonstrate how good teaching and godliness go hand in hand. Now, last week, Frank talked about the need for godliness. This week is good teaching, but they go together. They're two sides of the same coin, if you will. And Paul says, overcoming the results of false teaching requires devotion to good teaching, devotion of good teaching. Starting at verse 6, look at all the verbs here. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have set our hope on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example, speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. Until I come, devote yourself the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. So there's an awful lot there. But this is a strong exhortation Paul's given Timothy. He's giving him a lot of, here's what you need to do. First of all, he says, in warning his congregation about false teaching, he's going to be ministering faithfully. He'll be a good servant of the Lord if he warns his congregation about these things, if he points out these things. He says ministers that are good servants of Christ are nourished on sound doctrine, on uh, solid biblical teaching says they're nourished in the words of the faith and of good doctrine. And then verse 7, he says, false doctrine hurts people because it's unprofitable. Actually, technically what he says there is he compares false doctrine to irreverent, silly myths. And then he tells Timothy to strive for godliness. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. He makes a comparison to physical training and spiritual training for cultivating godliness. And so that's what he has to say to Timothy. I want you to prepare yourself to strive after godliness. Fight all the temptations, the discouragements, the pressures, the stresses, and strive after godliness. Now, those are fairly rigorous words to give to a young pastor in a setting that's already discouraging. And Paul knows that. And that's why he's waiting for us with verses 9 and 10. There are... Uh, five times in Timothy where he says, this is a trustworthy saying. This is the third of the five. We've already mentioned two of these. First Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Then in First Timothy 3, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble ta- task. And now here's the third faithful saying, 
verses 9 and 10, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Paul has come with these trustworthy sayings to encourage Timothy and to encourage you. Now one note when Paul says that God is the Savior of all people, what he's saying is there is no other Savior but the one true God of Israel, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that would have been incredibly encouraging uh, for Timothy to hear. Because here's Timothy. He's preaching to this small group of Jewish and Gentile Christians huddled in some house in Ephesus at the margins of society. We're not talking about some massive megachurch. This is a tiny little blip on the screen of what's going on in the Roman world. And it's a church that has all sorts of issues and dealing with false teaching, and there's problems, and Timothy's young, and not everybody likes him, and it's just a hard situation. And Paul says, Timothy, when you preach the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ, you are telling them the only way to salvation. The only way they will ever know what it means to be saved is if they know God whom you proclaim. I think that would have been amazing, encouraging, a reason to get up in the morning. And then he he goes, verse 13, makes reference to a devotion to particular uh, areas of responsibility. But we don't want to jump over verse 12 because he says there's five areas of life and ministry that you have to pay careful attention to. First two are public, speech and conduct. And then the next three, love, faith, and purity, are somewhat private, but they have a public dimension to them as well. So here's the issue. The authority with which Timothy is called to speak is not based on age and experience, but upon character. Now, last week, uh, Frank told you that all the qualifications uh, for elder and deacon, except for two, they're all based on character. So authority is based on character. And Paul wants him to know, in no uncertain terms, he has to set an example in every way. And then his people will know how to live the Christian life. It reminds me of the famous words of Robert Murray McShane, who's a famous Scottish uh, preacher. And he said, my people's greatest need is my personal holiness. Those words are all the more appropriate to remember when you realize they were uttered by a man who died at the age of 30. Paul says, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. That's what we think about for most pastors. But Paul wants us to know it's character, not skill, that's the issue here. It's not the brilliance of your exposition or rhetoric. It's not the charm of personality, good thing. It's not the extent of your qualifications. It is progress in godliness. Now, most of us who stand on this side of the pulpit find all this stuff somewhat devastating. You know, as you minister as a pastor here at Timothy, people are going to watch your progress. And this is the progress they're supposed to see. Not that you become more able uh, as a communicator or that you're better at doing this or that or the next thing, but that you make progress in speech and conduct and life and love, faith, purity, because what you do is what you are. And it shouldn't seem strange that Paul ascribes to Timothy the work of saving the church, the people in the church. 
For all that are one for God are saved by, and it's by the preaching of the gospel that we're gathered uh, to Christ. We read that, Romans 10. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says... Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So just as the unfaithful or the negligence of a pastor can be fatal to a church, so it's right for his salvation to be ascribed to his faithfulness and diligence. Now, it's true that God alone saves. Not even the smallest part of his glory can be attributed to any man. But Calvin says God's glory is in no way diminished by using the labor of men and bestowing salvation. So what does it mean to be a good minister? It means you better follow or you can't lead. It means you better pay attention to training yourself in godliness because that will have all sorts of ramifications uh, in relationship to your speech, your conduct, your love, your faith, your purity. In terms of the function of the office, you better be diligent and devoted to reading the Bible and preaching the Bible and teaching the Bible. That's going to be the all-consuming passion of your life. But it means you can't talk with everybody that wants to talk to you, that you can't attend every meeting that everybody's ever thought of. You can't be part of every request that comes your way. You have to be focused on the preaching and teaching and reading of God's Word. We do a lot of reading in God's Word. Somebody asked me once, you you read a lot of Bible uh, in this church, not just preaching on it and teaching on it, you just read it. Now, I I teach this uh, at RTS, and I say, when we read the Scriptures to you, that is the time when God is most directly talking to His people. You remember that? He took that class. That's the time when God is most directly talking to his people. We don't want to short-circuit that. Who knows what God's going to do when you hear his word? But today, so many people are trying to avoid that. They're trying to avoid that the uh, words of the preaching and teaching the word of God and having a life that matches those words in godliness. They know it's hard, so I just as soon skip it. And so a lot of people are trying to somehow separate that words and life. And yet, Paul's hammering that home to Timothy. You got to say the right things, and then your words have to match. You got to walk the talk, so to speak. Now, because I've been doing this a long time, I'm often asked to bring the charge at an installation or ordination service of a new pastor. Most recently, I brought the charge to John Jones, the new pastor at King's Cross in Ashburn. Now, at most of these uh, either installation or ordination services, there's a younger man who's being reminded of these matters by, quote, an elder brother in the ministry, because elder brother sounds so much better than old man. So the elder brother, that's me, is commissioned to deliver a charge to the pastor and bring his attention to the privileges and duties of this high office. But there are some today who feel that pastoring has become an insignificant part of the whole, 
And you may think, what else do pastors do but pastor? But I've learned over the last 30-some years that pastors can be all kinds of things. They can be teachers, coaches, visionaries, and catalytic agents of change. They can even be thought leaders, whatever that means, influencers, strategists, movement makers, marketers, innovators, and chief creative architects. To the point where it seems almost accidental to find a pastor who's actually a pastor. But God himself supplies the best visual aids. And he's basically telling us here that he wants the pastor to be a visual aid to the congregation. The people are not only supposed to see a godly elder, but a growing elder. Paul told Timothy not only to pay attention to his life, but to make public improvement. Look at verse 15. This is really intimidating. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Well, that's a little scary. But note that Paul says, see your progress, not perfection. Jesus already has perfection covered. But the church needs to imitate not only the degree to which you're grown in Christ, but the fact that you're still growing. Which brings us to one of the most important thoughts about godliness. When it comes to your sanctification and it comes to growing in Christ and being made more like Christ, it's more important where you are going than where you are. Direction matters more than position. Your future progress speaks louder than your present placement. So cheer up. If you aren't as holy as you want to be right now, God may still be pleased with you because you're heading in the right direction. On the other hand, be warned. If you aren't as holy as you used to be, God probably isn't impressed with yesterday's triumph if for the last few months you've done nothing but quit. So get back at it. Get involved with people. Get in, get in a group. Join a women's Bible study, a community group. Come to Sunday school. Paul tells us that progress in godliness is something that can and should be seen. Now, 27 years ago, 27 years and nine months ago, Joanne and I came to Loudoun County as part of a candidating process for me to become the pastor of Potomac Hills. Mark and Phoebe probably remember that. Eli doesn't. He was one. We were only here for a couple days, but during that time, we met with the church. We had this big group interview, and unless you think it was something like this, we actually met in someone's living room in their townhouse, and pretty much the whole church fit in the room, maybe 18 adults. And they asked us lots of questions, and uh, they finally got to our turn to ask questions, and I can remember we simply said, why us? And they had lots of good answers because nobody wanted to say we're really desperate. Uh, which would have been true on both sides. But I do remember one answer in particular to my question, why us? And this person said, and I remember this vividly, well, your kids are a few, old, few years older than all of ours, and we have no idea how to parent. We know we can't do what our parents did, so we thought we would watch you. That was terrifying. <laughs> we almost considered not coming. 
I remember Joanne and I talking about it that night. Oh, man, if these people had any idea, this interview would be over. I mean, our kids can be a handful. I mean, they have moments that will put the fear of God in you, and their parents are even worse. But we didn't tell them that, so they let us come. (laughs) Paul has lots of hard words here. Words like train, toil, strive, practice, persist. And it can sound a lot like we're trying to earn our salvation, not a lot of grace in those words. But hear this. We don't toil and strive to be saved. We toil and strive because we are saved. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And because we're saved, we know we can never earn God's love and acceptance. It is ours already through Christ. He is our Savior. We love him. Because we love him, we want to be a good servant of his. Training for godliness is built entirely on the glorious grace of the God who saved us. And it's empowered by that same glorious grace and by the hope that we have in Christ. I realize a message like this can run the risk of making people feel condemned, like they're not doing enough. And you may already feel like a failure. I want you to hear this. We are saved by grace. There's nothing we can add, period. That God will never love you more than he does right now. And he will never love you less than he does right now. And in response to that love, The Bible says God's love compels us. And one of the things it compels us to is striving for godliness. And that's good doctrine. You should thank him for it. Do that now, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a Savior. Thank you that you have brought us into a relationship with you where you speak and we listen. Father, we say we love your word, but we don't always live like we do. Help us to teach and to hear your word. Help us to align our lives with that word. Help us to be people who train ourselves for godliness because we have our hope set on the living God. We know that we can only do that through the merits of your son whose blood and righteousness grant us access to the throne of grace. And we only pursue godliness through the strength of our helper, the Holy Spirit, who meets us in our weakness. Grant that knowing all this may result in changing lives. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen and amen.